back on the very first week of this series, I started out describing and speaking from the, the banner verse, that's kind of what I've referred to it as, over not just this whole series, but really over my aim in ministry as well. It's the last thing that the Apostle Peter writes. It's at the very conclusion of his second epistle. It's a command that's given to you and I, and it's directly tied to the will of God for his people, and it ends with this doxological declaration of the ultimate goal for which we all truly exist. 2 Peter 3.18 reads, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. As I said in week one from this text, and as I've said countless times outside of this pulpit for well over a decade of my life now, Christians are people who are always called to be growing in our faith, not staying still. This is just foundational to what it means to be a Christian. You are called to grow. You are called to develop. You're called to become more mature. You're called to flourishing and bear good fruit in your life. Not a single Christian is called and saved by God just to kick back and relax and wait till they get to go to heaven. We're called to always be growing. And we started at this verse at the very beginning of the series, and I've referenced it throughout the series, trying to bring us back to this, this command that's given there where he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And where I want us to end today, what I want us to talk about in this final week of the series as we conclude in week 12, is I want us to talk about what we do and how we deal with when we fail. The discipline, this final discipline that I want to give us is talking about perseverance, specifically perseverance through grace. Back in week one, I explained that the word that we found there in 2 Peter 3.18, that's translated as grow into English, has a grammatical connection to another English word that we use. It's a word we use to describe not just growth, but good growth. The word flourish is connected to that phrase. Flourishing is bearing good results. It's fulfilling the purpose for which something has been created or something has been established. For you and I to flourish, it's becoming what God has designed and made us to be. And we're called to that. We're called to flourish as Christians. And I, again, I believe this is for all Christians, not just some. And I know that that is true because I know that this internal flourishing, spiritual flourishing that's in mind here for Peter and throughout the Bible, our devotion to God, that's not at all tied to the external things in our life. It's not tied to temporal things. It's not tied to if we have really easy lives or really hard lives. And if it's hard, well, then you have an excuse. No, all of us are called to be growing and flourishing in the Lord. And just this week, I was reading a book from a Puritan pastor named Joseph Aline. At the very start of the book was a biographical sketch of his life, and just in those first few pages, I was struck. I was stirred and convicted reading about him. The Act of Uniformity was passed in England on May 19, 1662, and what that meant was many godly Puritan pastors, 2,000 ministers in England at the time, were kicked out of their pulpits, no longer allowed to serve in their churches because they refused to conform to the government's demands that were put upon them. And Pastor Joseph Aline was one of them. Suddenly, at the passing of this law, it became illegal for him to function as a pastor in the church that he had been leading. 
And his wife testifies that despite that fact, despite being kicked out of that, having no livelihood now, no legal standing to, to be a minister of the gospel, he actually increased his preaching. He went out to fields and preached to crowds as they would gather. He'd go into private homes. He'd go into public meeting places and begin to just preach the gospel. She records that for these months after the act of uniformity, he was preaching six to seven times a week with some weeks seeing as many as 14 sermons being delivered. And then just listen to this. Just about a year after the passing of the act of uniformity, here's what I read. At length, after surviving many threats, Aline received a summons on May 26, 1663. That night, he appointed to meet with his people about one or two o'clock in the morning, to which they showed their readiness. There were, of both young and old, many hundreds who came together. He preached and prayed with them for about three hours. That day, he was arrested and thrown into prison at Ilchester. After a year, he was released, only to be confronted by the rigors of the Five Mile Act. On July 10th, 1666, he was preaching on Psalm 147.20 in a gathering in a private home when the doors were battered open and he was taken away to prison again. He ends up serving a sentence in prison, being released once again, and then arrested and sent back to prison multiple more times always on the charge of refusing to cease preaching the gospel and caring for his people. These repeated arrests and stretches in prison led to his health being broken, and his life ends November 17, 1668. Just a few years after all this began, he dies at the age of 34. Now, Aline was not a prosperous, flourishing man in the eyes of the world. But his devotion to God and his spiritual flourishing and the joy that he had in the midst of these hardships were evident in his life as multiple contemporaries testify. And they're evident still if you look back now, all these hundreds of years later, and see what he was writing and saying in the midst of all of this. See, what I'm aiming for in my life and what I'm, I'm trying to help build in your lives is this type of genuine spiritual flourishing of vitality we need to be building that up now, and my prayer is that it's working now, you're growing now, and that that will continue to develop no matter what may come in our lives for you and I to become this type of mature in our faith. Even if prisons and trials come like they did at that time. And listen, that's not as far-fetched for us today as some of you might think. Our country is right on the brink of legalizing persecution of believers, destroying religious freedom in this country, which we think so foundational, so untouchable. It's not. Right now, in the name of the LGBTQIA plus agenda, there is evil legislation in play, approved by the House and the Equality Act before the Senate, that if it is passed, will destroy the foundation of religious freedom that you and I rely upon. And within months of it being passed, you and I could be asked to pay a price to go to jail or to shut up. This is not far-fetched. We live in a culture that's rapidly moving towards not just rising secularism, which we've been dealing with for a long time. It is a militant anti-Christian view that is pushing forward in our country today. We do not live in neutral times. We never have we do not have the luxury of waiting and relaxing. These days that God has given us to prepare for what lies ahead are very precious and very important. 
And I firmly believe what I said in week one of the series. In fact, believing all of this, having watched these things taking place for months and over a year now, these convictions are so strong in me. This is why we did this series. This is why we spent 12 weeks talking about the spiritual disciplines, because I believe the spiritual disciplines help us aim for joy and flourishing in our lives as Christians. And everything we've talked about in this series are things that if you're building into your life and you're growing in now, they can be brought into those trials and into those difficulties and into those hardships, and you can continue growing. Even if we face persecution, even if we can't gather here because there's police to stop us from doing that, if you're engaged in these spiritual disciplines, you will continue to flourish and grow in the Lord. And so 12 weeks of what I've been handing to you, as I, as I said, I'm hoping these are practical things. They're not just nice ideas to sit here and listen to. They're things to take out of this place and begin to implement into your life. Hear me clearly, please. The time is short, and these things I'm talking about are important for us to grasp and implement in our lives. Because the reality that I've often talked about in here is that the Christian life, it does take work. We're not saved to a life of leisure. We don't get to just coast along, passively increasing in spiritual growth just naturally as our age increases year by year. We don't just happen into maturity as Christians. A mature Christian, hear me, is not just an older person or a person who was converted a long time ago. Age is not the same thing as spiritual maturity. I know many physically older and even spiritually older people who are not mature Christians because their experience with Christ has only been casual. They've just lived life the way they want to live life. They've added Jesus in when that seems convenient or when he fits into their desires or their traditions or their preferences rather than doing the hard work of training and becoming disciplined in the things of God and growing in godliness and pursuing God the way they should. They end up old and immature. And conversely, I know a lot of young people, both young in terms of age and in terms of years since their conversion, who have been hungry to grow and have dug deeply into scriptures and really understand the God of grace and his will for their lives. And they've become mature despite their age. Think about Joseph Eileen, dead at 34 years of age. But if you go read his works and what he was saying and look at what he was doing in his life, the maturity of that brother would be so evident to you. Hear me, nobody stumbles into spiritual maturity. To grow into the Christian life and to become mature in following the Lord has nothing to do with age or time as we mark it. It's how we're spending our lives. You can be a mature 70-year-old or you can be an immature 70-year-old. You can be a mature 22-year-old or an immature 22-year-old. Time has nothing to do with it. Your age has nothing to do with it. It's what are you spending your life pursuing. The difference comes from the grace of God that grows in us normatively through these spiritual disciplines that the Lord has called us to. You won't find spiritual maturity if you never engage in these disciplines. If you're not in the scripture, if you're not in prayer, if you're not worshiping, if you're not ever evangelizing, if you're not doing anything that we've talked about, you're not going to find maturity. You're looking for it in the wrong way or you're just not looking for it. We have work to do. And the things in this series that we've been putting before us, they're work. I get that. But there's what we are called to do by God for the purpose of growth in godliness. I'm reminded of how Paul speaks in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. He's talking about how he's pursuing maturity for, for himself and for those he's ministering to. And he says there, it is for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Right? Like we, you, you get those words there. To toil is to do hard work. 
is to work to the point of fatigue. It's difficult. It takes effort. And this word that we translate in the English as struggling here, the Greek word that Paul actually wrote is the word we get agonized from. This is difficult. This is a fight. There's a challenge here. It's going to take effort to grow, to do this type of work, but it's what we're called to do. We're commanded by God to pursue growth, to do this type of disciplined work. Now, I say all of that, and, and I don't want you to think for a moment, because I don't believe for a moment, and I don't want to act like, and I don't want you to, to get this false impression that these spiritual disciplines, okay, they're super important, and so that should mean they just happen overnight, right? We flip a switch, and we'll start doing them, and that's easy, and now we're good. We've heard for 12 weeks about things to do. I've got 12 things to do. I'm just going to do them. That's not how this works. I do not expect that any of you, after having heard one sermon on each of these topics over the last 12 weeks, and maybe if you're plugged into a small group, having that additional discussion the week following on that topic, I don't expect that any of you have suddenly, completely, properly reoriented your whole lives to include these things the way that you should. I am very aware, from personal experience and from the study of Scripture, that we all often fail in this life. It's not a matter of if you will fail in your walk with Jesus as a Christian. It's not a matter of if you will fail to live out these spiritual disciplines we've talked about. It's only a matter of certainty. You will. We all will fail in this. None of us are perfect. None of us will be able to persevere in the difficulties that we face and obtain the goal of godliness if we're just doing it in our own strength or by our own hard work. We'll fail every single time. So in 1517, when Martin Luther posted the 95 Thesis on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, the very first thesis he had on there, number one on the list, says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Why is that number one for Luther? Why is that the first thing he puts on the list? Why is that the foundational thesis for this magisterial document? It's because Luther knows how often we fail as humans. Even as believers, we fail over and over and over again. That's the clear testimony of life, if you're paying attention, and it's the clear testimony of the scriptures themselves. You will not find one single person in all of the Bible who's perfect. Not Abraham, not Jacob, not Moses, or Samuel, or Eli, or Paul, or Peter, or James. Nobody in the narrative, front to back, is perfect except Jesus. He's the only perfect one who's ever lived. That's why we worship him. He did what we cannot do. He, he succeeded where we fail. He had no sin. He had no need to ever repent. He had no failings to overcome. That's why Jesus can hang on the cross and suffer death. That's not the punishment for sin that he has committed. It's the punishment for sin that his people, we, have committed. He can be the perfect substitute because he was perfect and spotless and blameless. He can be the once and for all covering for his people because he was perfect and not a single one of us are. Jesus could freely exchange his perfection and righteousness for our filth and our failure and our sinfulness. He could give us salvation as he took the wrath of God upon himself because he is so unlike all the rest of us. And so if you're honest and you'll admit your failures and how captive to sin you are in your life right now even, then you're in good company. And you're thinking rightly about who you are 
and the reality of this life. But if you sit here today thinking you're without sin, you don't have any need to repent, as Luther talks about here. You've got this life pretty well in hand. You've, you've been doing this a while. You're pretty good. Then the Bible calls you a liar and a fool and says you're deceived and your very soul is at stake. And I love you too much to, to soften that up. We are all in need of God's forgiving grace. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 10 minutes or 10 years or 60 years. You're still not perfect. Only he is. Only he is without sin. You need to rely upon him because if you're relying upon yourself, the punishment for that is eternity paying the price of your own sins. No matter how much you come to church, no matter how much religion you claim, no matter how moral your external life looks, none of it is enough to save you. The only way to be saved is to rely fully upon Christ. And if you're not doing that, if you're not trusting in him completely, in his perfection, and acknowledging your imperfections, then your soul is in danger and you must repent and believe in him alone. And if we do, Christians, those of us who do, we have everything given to us. If, if we're trusting in him, we have full forgiveness. We have full righteousness given to us. Life eternal that he earned that we never could. It's just given to you and I freely as this gift of God. He gives us his perfections as he takes away our sins. So repent today and turn from yourself and turn to Jesus who gives you what you cannot find anywhere else. The common ground here this morning is that we're all sinners who fail over and over and over again, and we need to do this. We need to turn to Christ, every single one of us. Romans 3.23 is a text I hope is, is in your memory somewhere. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not a light statement that's made there. It's not a qualified statement that's made there. It literally means all of us, every single one of us, have sinned. And Paul, just a few chapters later in Romans 7, explains all, not only includes himself, it includes all people at all times, himself in the very moment he's writing the book of Romans, he identifies with that statement. Even as a Christian, even as a person walking with God, he confesses and laments, he still sins and he still falls short and he still struggles to glorify God the way he ought to in his life. Romans seven nineteen, Paul writes, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anybody feel that in their own life? Paul has the struggle. and He's admitting the same struggle and failures here that we still have as Christians. We still struggle with sin. We're not perfect at any point in this lifetime, before or after we become believers. Again, Luther said it perfectly right, albeit in Latin, so it's not as helpful. We are simul just et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinner. There's two realities there for us, but we're not done away with our sin until we leave this life. We say it today a little more commonly. We are saved sinners. What we mean by that is we're still struggling. We're still failing. We still sin indeed. We still have a need, but we're being given salvation and grace and mercy every day by a God who is so loving and kind to us. And Paul continues in Romans 7, 21 to 23. He says, so I, I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul's lamenting. It's a struggle. 
in this life. He knows he ought to do what is right. He wants to intellectually. Maybe he would relate to you sitting in here listening to these sermons over the last 12 weeks. You think, I want to do that. I want to orient my life around those things. But then you leave here and the war is waged in you to keep you from doing them. That's what Paul's talking about. Just like us, he knows the reality of this war within. And Paul knows what it is to fail at these things just as we do today. The spiritual disciplines that we've talked about over the last 12 weeks in this series that we should have in our lives, but if we're honest, we'll admit aren't where they should be, are these. We should be studying scripture. Not just when we show up to church, not just here and there. We should be committed to studying the word of God because it is literally God speaking to us. And we should be pressing into prayer. As we hear him speak to us in scripture, we should respond by praying and speaking to him. Not just when a group of us gets together, not just when something really bad happens. It should mark our life day in and day out, talking with the God who invites us to his throne to lift up our needs, to lift up our cares, to grow relationally with him. We should press into prayer in our lives. And we should remember God's work and his will for us. We so often forget who God is and what God has done, and we get hung up looking at just what's going on around us instead of remembering what's gone on in the past. We have such short memories when it comes to God and what he's done. In week four, we talked about how we are called to live worshipfully, lives of worship, not just a couple songs, not just, man, that was so great when we were up here singing today. That was wonderful worship. Okay, I'm looking forward to the next time I get to worship in seven days when we come back. No, our lives are to be worship. Day in, day out, everything that we do, acknowledging God, seeing him at work, thanking him for what he's given us and seeking to glorify him with all that we have, we should live worshipful lives. And you and I, if we are really Christians who believe in the gospel message and believe in what the Bible says, we should be actively engaging in evangelism. That doesn't mean you get to go hold a big crusade somewhere and draw a big crowd of hundreds of people. I mean, you have people in your life who you have conversations with that you can talk about Jesus to. You can, you can share the good news. And you all have this opportunity. You all have the responsibility to do this, to be actively engaged in evangelism. We're called to be careful stewards of our lives. Because each of us has been given time and we've been given resources and all those in varying and different amounts and ways, but all of us are called to steward them because none of it belongs to us. The breath you have the skills you have, the intelligence you have, the knowledge you have, it's all been gifted to you by God. You're but a steward of it. How are you using it? We need to be working on things that help us grow closer to Lord in our life, things like sharpening our affections with fasting. Setting aside the things that we enjoy, the things that we rely upon in order to put God above them. This is a discipline we're all called to. We need to be finding times of silence and solitude in our lives to focus upon God. And I get it. I felt like the last few weeks of my life have just been me trying to kind of climb above all the demands and keep my head above water. And I'm not really in control of my schedule. It's felt like it's controlled me for a bit. I know it's a challenge sometimes, but that's why we have this discipline of finding silence and solitude. To, to intentionally go, I'm going to set those things aside. I'm going to trust that the Lord's going to keep the universe spinning while I just sit and meet with him. And maybe some things fall off the to-do list. But I'm going to trust he's sovereign, and I'm not God, so I'm going to find silence and solitude to be with him. 
we're all of us called to be seeking and storing up and sharing knowledge with others, right? I said, look, it's not enough for you and I to just live life passively day by day and going on to the next day and living in that day. You and I, we need to be intentional to record what is God doing? What is God showing us in this day? How has he been faithful in this day? How can we put something down, maybe a note on our phone, maybe writing in a journal, whatever technique works for you, but how can we record knowledge of God so that we can share it with others more effectively? And you and I, we need to be engaged in both times of meaningful mourning because we do face hardships and we do face loss and we do face afflictions in this life, but we're called to mourn, yes, but not to mourn as those who have no hope, to mourn differently, to have a meaning in our mourning. And we're called to have times of joyful celebration. We're called to engage in those things and to push in. And sometimes that means setting aside whichever moment I'm in. Maybe I'm in a season of mourning. Maybe I'm in a season of joy. At times, it will require laying aside where I am to engage in the other season with the people of God around me. We're called to these things. And if we're honest in this place, and again, I hope that you would be honest I hope you'd be honest with God as you sit here because he already knows the truth. I hope that we'd become a people who are so honest that we would walk in here desiring to be honest, not not coming in here passively going, well, someone's probably going to say, how you doing? I'm just going to say, good, because I don't really want to get into my life and the difficulties I've got. No, I pray you'd be honest and you'd actually open up. And if you've got something going on in your life with someone else, you wouldn't just set that aside. You'd go have those conversations. You'd go talk. You'd go connect with someone. You'd reconcile with someone. You'd be a person who understands the gospel's gift to you, and you'd apply it to other people. I pray we'd be honest to people. And if we're honest, then what you will admit this morning, every single one of us without exception in this room would admit, over these last 12 weeks, I have failed at doing all these things over and over again. It's true for you. I know it is. It's true for me. There's various results I've made over these last 12 weeks. I'm going to do a little differently in this. I'm going to do a little bit better in this. I'm going to spend a little more time in this way. And then something happens, and I've failed. I've failed to do what I wanted to do. And I know it's true for you, and God knows it's true for you. He's not shocked by that admission of honesty in your heart right now. Paul knew this type of struggle was true. Here in Romans 7, he laments it. He says in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Did you hear the desperation and the frustration in that statement? Paul knows the reality and articulates the reality that you and I won't often say for ourselves, maybe for other people, but what's true of you and I is that we're wretched sinners too. We're not any better in ourselves than anyone else in this world. So listen, if you're not a Christian, hear hear me clearly, because you might have the wrong idea about what church is. This is not a place like a country club where perfect people all get together to celebrate how good we are. This is a hospital that a bunch of broken people have come into because we all need the great physician to heal us. So welcome. Nobody's better than anyone else in here. Nobody's come into this place not struggling with sin. The only people who would say that are the people who've deceived themselves. We're all in need of the Savior. And so that's who we've come to worship today. That's who we've come to meet with today. All of us are struggling with sin in some regard. We're struggling with this because we're in this body of death, as Paul calls it. But just like Paul, we don't despair that reality if we're a Christian. We actually get to say the next thing Paul says too. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Like, yes, we're in this body of death. Yes, we're failing. Yes, we're still struggling with sins that we thought would be gone by this point, but they're not. They're still there. They still crop up. But Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why? Why does Paul get to say that? Why do we get to say that as Christians? Because of what starts Romans chapter 8. Look at what Paul writes. In light of all the struggles, in light of all the failings, in light of all the sin that clings to you and I, Paul still says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why he says, praise be to God through Jesus. Because if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. You can come in here broken and held up by sin and failing time and time again this week. And you come in here and there's no condemnation for you at the cross of Christ if you're one of his people. He continues, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free, Christian, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You and I, we fail over and over and over again. Our flesh, it's weak. The struggle with sin is real. But for those of us who are in Christ, the condemnation, the penalty for those failures is gone. Christians, we are still sinners, but we are saved from the price of our sins. God has done what we could not do. He has freed us from the law of sin and death. He's freed us from what we deserve. He's freed us from our repeated failings. So when we fail, we must remember this promise of the gospel. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has saved us. Salvation is found not in our works, not in our successes, but in him, in his completed work, in his perfect success, in his overwhelming grace. And God, he knows our weaknesses. He knows how often we have failed. But the good news is your salvation's not reliant upon that. It's on Jesus. As I've tried to help you see time and time again, Understand this morning, God knows all of your sins. He knows all of them in the past. He knows all the sins that you're sitting in right here that maybe nobody else knows is going on. He knows those. And he even knows all the sins that you will commit in the future. Those are not surprises to him. And he not only knows all of them right now in this moment, he knew all of them when Jesus went to the cross to conquer sin. So there's no, there's no rider on the contract. God's not going, oh, didn't see them doing that thing in 2020. Got to go, gotta go back in time, put that on the cross now. He knew Jesus paid for all of it there. It's done. When he said it is finished, he meant finished. Nothing more to add to this. So he's not surprised now when you and I fail. He knows exactly how broken we are. He knows how often we will fail. He knows how strongly our sins cling to us. And all of it was paid for at the cross of Jesus Christ. So get this, God knew what he was buying when he saved you. He knew what he was setting his love upon. As unlovely as you and I are, he already knew. So listen, the key to perseverance the key to continuing in the spiritual disciplines, even after we failed, even after in these last 12 weeks, just a short period of time, we failed over and over and over again. How can we persevere in this? How can we continue in this when the next series isn't this? We're not just going to keep talking about this. So what do we do? How do we persevere in this? We come back to the gospel over and over and over in our failures. We learn how to repent of our failures and trust in him and his completed work alone. 
Again, you're, you're going to fail. I am going to fail. We're going to get caught up in our sins. We're going to struggle to live as the Lord intends for us to live. But when it happens, Christian, do not despair. Do not hide it. Do not compound it by lying to yourself and pretending your failure is not there. Don't pretend with others that you don't sin. Come back to God and be honest and say, I have failed. So you can hear him say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you admit your failings to him, you can hear his grace spoken over you again. You can experience again the gospel covering your sins, covering your failures, giving you peace, giving you the clean start that you desperately need. And we can start to move forward again. We can start to move upward again. We can start to obey his commands. Do not give up. The key to perseverance is that. Do not give up. Keep coming back as much as you need to the gospel, finding forgiveness and picking up and going again. There's no, there's no magic solution to prevent you from failing. You will fail. But you have a God whose grace exceeds your failures. In the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, we're told, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Hear that. Do not grow weary. Do not become faint-hearted. Do not give up. Because yes, you will struggle with sin all the way until you die. And since you're not dead yet, you're called to keep going. But don't look to yourself. Don't think, I'm going to be better this time. I've learned from my mistakes. So I'm just going to make that tweak and I've got it now. Perfection's right around the corner for me. Don't look to you. Look to him. The one who did resist all the way. The one who did go all the way to death with perfection intact. The one who did shed his own perfect spotless blood so that you and I, the failures that we are, could hear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Those in Christ Jesus. Not just there's no condemnation for Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for us in him. Those of us trusting in him hear that proclaimed over and over and over again to you. If you're not a Christian... If you're not looking to Christ for your salvation, then my, my, my challenge to you, I'm imploring you today, turn to him. He's the God who came for the broken, sinful failures that are sitting in this room, all of us. He died in the place of his people so that we would not have to suffer the wrath that we deserve for our own sin. I implore you, put your faith and trust in Christ alone. Realize that you cannot save yourself, that you are not going to be good enough. But his grace is available to all who call upon Christ and all who follow him. We can hear over and over and over that the condemnation is gone. He's done it all. And those of us who profess to be Christians in here this morning... Today, I want to call us to repent of our failures, to admit them, to stop pretending as we're so prone to do, to turn to Christ and be honest with him and ask him to forgive our sins and empower us for today and for tomorrow and for the rest of the week so that we could live obediently and intentionally to glorify him with all that we are and all that we do. And we're going to sing in just a moment, but listen, if you're, if you're a Christian and primarily as I've thought about this message and been praying about this message, I've been mostly wanting to talk to those of you who have been trying, who have started in on this and you've been failing, because I, I get that. I know I'm there, right? I admitted my own failures in the last several weeks too. 
Primarily, I'm thinking of you, and I'm wanting you to hear the goodness of the gospel. My desire has been to point you to Christ and to encourage you in the work and to encourage you to go and find God's grace for every single failure. I want to encourage you, don't give up. But there's some of us who would proclaim to be Christians and haven't even engaged in the work at all. And you come in here and you've sat in a place of disobedience to God because you're just casual in your Christianity. And I want to say to you today, repent. Stop pretending to be something you're not. You're not fooling anyone who matters. God knows your heart, and he knows what your actions are. And if you're commanded to grow in obedience to the Scripture, and you choose to disregard that, the Lord sees that sin. And you're in a dangerous place. Your soul is at stake if you're just going to play at Christianity. If you're a Christian, if you take that name, then live like one. That doesn't mean be perfect. None of us are. It means put in the work. Come to God, admit those failings, experience his grace, and experience the growth he calls us to. Pursue growth and knowledge of him. Obey his commands. Engage in the fight that we are called to do. Don't think you're off the hook because, okay, the 12-week series is over and we're done talking to spiritual disciplines. Now I'll move on to the next thing. You have a responsibility if you bear the name of Christ to do as he commands. He is God. That should have weight. Morgan and Tyler are going to come. They're going to lead us in a song this morning that's going to give us a lot of opportunity to respond. You don't know this song, and so the words, they will be on the screen, and you can sing, and you can uh, engage in worship that way, but I'm going to challenge you before you do that, before you begin to lift up your voice to God to do work with your own heart. Because all of us in this room have need of repentance today, and so before you would do anything else, would you do that? Repent of your failings, And know, Christian, know that when you repent, he gives you grace. There's no risk in this. Admitting your failure to God is not a risky endeavor. The promise is clear. He will give you grace and forgiveness. Don't believe the lie that you're going to find maturity in the Christian life some other way, some other time. Just just staying around long enough isn't going to produce it in you. You have to get in the word. You have to pray. You have to worship him. You have to repent of your failings. You have to push into these disciplines. You have to continually experience his grace as you admit your need to be transformed by his power working you. Your sins today, like all of our sins in this room, they're dealt with at the cross. There's forgiveness and love and strength for the task ahead of us. So today, let's go to the cross. Let's go to Jesus and let's find what we need. Let's seek him. Let's obey his word as we sing, as we have a chance to respond and pray. These altars are open if you want to come to them. If you want someone to pray with you, come tap me on the shoulder. I'd love to pray with you. Nothing would be better to me than to pray with you today that the Lord would help you grow in obedience to his word. Let's respond and let's worship the Lord today. God, I believe that those of us in this room who have turned our hearts to you, whether we've come to the front or whether we've dealt with you where we are, Lord, that, that we have found the gospel to be true that we have found your, your power to forgive is still available. I pray, Lord, that every heart in this room knows they're not defined by the mistakes of their past. They're not defined by the failures that have happened in their past. Even today, Lord, those things don't define them. It is the love and the grace and the mercy of you through Jesus Christ that defines who we are. 
And so I pray today, Lord, that every heart in this room knows that and every heart in this room leaves with great confidence that they can persevere, not because of our strength, not because of our power, not because of our, our wisdom, but because we can rely upon you. And though we haven't reached the end of this life yet, we're looking to the one who did accomplish this, who is perfect right now and who gives that to all who rely upon him. So today I pray, Lord, that that be in our hearts, every single one of us, and that we would leave here with greater confidence that when we fail, when we come to you with our failures, we find forgiveness, grace, and mercy. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the time to respond to you and the time to worship you. We ask your blessing upon us as we go. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.